This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello there, you're very welcome to Monday's Second Captain's Podcast after a weekend in which sport and politics collided in a way that has not been seen for years, maybe even decades. And no, I'm not talking about Theresa May offering her support to Ireland's bid to host the 2023 World Cup, Mervyn Ken. I'm talking about the president. We really thought that's what you were talking I know. About. The president of the United States going out of his way to call out black American sports people, sparking remarkable scenes around the NFL with players, coaches, owners. In one case, the person actually performing the national anthem joining two together play, two, in, in two cases. A couple of cases that happened, yeah. yeah. Uh, hi, Murph. Hi, Ken. Hello there. How are you? It probably is worth setting out how this all got ignited over the last couple of days, Ken. Well, well it got ignited by, obviously, Trump, but... Yeah, it, it got ignited, um, I suppose, by, way back last year mm. when Colin Kaepernick uh, decided not to stand for the anthem and then when criticised for this, when when people eventually noticed some, <laughs> After a some couple games, games later, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, decided to kneel instead. So this obviously was a had become a big issue last year. But the thing was that it, that, I mean, Colin Kaepernick, we've been, we've spoken about this before. Colin Kaepernick has, has evidently been blackballed for his political views. He has been left out of a job um, as he's out of contract. And even though his uh, statistics suggest that he should be playing in the NFL and is better than some players who are playing in his position in the NFL, uh, he hasn't been taken on. And it's, it's not too difficult to work out why that is, um, and yet the you know the, the in terms of the anthem protests. I mean, I I had heard or I'd read you know comments from other players speaking about Kaepernick, and and I was kind of struck by the tone of their kind of their very resigned tone that they had, where it was like, look, you know, I'm just here to do a job. What can you do? You know, I'm just trying to keep the show on the road here. I don't really want to get involved. You know, there loads, loads of players were saying this kind of thing. There was there was certainly a, a kind of an apathy about the protest. I mean, there, there were players who supported him in the protest, but I think for a lot of players, there was a feeling, look, I can't change anything. You know, I'm going to bring a lot of heat down on myself. And, you know, I, I wish him well, but, you know, I'm just going to stay out of this. Um Nothing had really been been happening. It's not like it was a real live issue. The number of protests last week was in single figures. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, of players either kneeling or raising a fist during the national anthem in single figures. Yeah, no actual number on it, but certainly less than ten. So then Donald Trump goes to Alabama, and in a in a freewheeling speech, uh, you can always tell the difference between when he's when he's speaking when he's on auto cue and when he's not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he he says how he'd like to throw it. Wouldn't you like to throw that son of a bitch off the field? 
you know, you're fired. He loves repeating his catchphrase. I mean, he talked about the NFL, and obviously he praised himself for the NFL's falling ratings. Then he attacked the concussion thing, saying they're, they're ruining the game. Yeah, they're ruining, too soft, they're ruining the game. Um, but mainly it was about the son-of-a-bitch players disrespecting our flag. Uh, you know, which is, I mean, the language is just so so kind of out there it's so crazy that he would that he would speak about uh Kaepernick and the other players in this way um and so this this obviously didn't go down very well with a lot of people uh, but then on Saturday he started attacking other people he started attacking Steph Curry Steph Curry who must surely be the most one of the most popular sportsmen in oh, the yeah. United States out. yeah yeah who has a bad word to say about Steph Curry? He says, Steph Curry, uh, it's a great honor to be invited to White House. Steph Curry is hesitating. Therefore, invite is withdrawn. Uh, which prompts LeBron James a few minutes later to tweet him saying, you bum. You know, it was a great honor to be invited to White House until you showed up. Um, great he, word to use, by the way. If you want to piss Donald Trump off, you... I don't know if calling him a white supremacist is going to bother him one way or the other at this point. You call him a bum. Think that's actually going to cut to the core of Donald Trump a lot quicker. Yeah, well, just it's it's incredible, though, isn't it? Like these are the two top basketball players in America. LeBron James is is he the biggest star in American sports? I imagine, yeah, he he pretty much is. Him or Tom Brady? Yeah, yeah. or or maybe Steph Curry. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like Curry, I saw him speaking about it. Just going, I just. Can't believe this. Well, we've got a little bit. We've got, we've got some Curry and we've got a little bit of Steve Kerr's coach as well. But I'll tell you what, we go back to the Trump stuff that started it off because you tend to see little 10, 15 second clips of this. But it's interesting to hear the three minutes or so in its entirety. And as you, as you mentioned, Ken, it's quite obvious that we're picking it up just as he moves off teleprompter Trump onto off the cuff freewheeling Trump. Everyone in this arena tonight are unified by the same great American values. We're proud of our country. We respect our flag. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired. You know, some owner's going to do that. He's going to say, that guy that disrespects our flag, he's fired. And that owner, they don't know it. They don't know it. They're friends of mine, many of them. They don't know it. They'll be the most popular person for a week. They'll be the most popular person in this country, because that's a total disrespect of our heritage. That's a total disrespect of everything that we stand for, okay? everything that we stand for. And I know we have freedoms and we have freedom of choice and many, many different freedoms. But you know what? It's still totally disrespectful. And you know, when the NFL ratings are down massively, massively, the NFL ratings are down massively. Now, the number one reason happens to be that they like watching what's happening on, you know, with yours truly. They like what's happening. This because you know today if you hit too hard, right? They hit too hard. Fifteen yards, throw him out of the game. They had that last week. I watched for a couple of minutes, and two guys just really beautiful tackle. Boom! Fifteen yards. The referee gets on television. His wife is sitting at home. She's so proud of him. They're ruining the game, right? They're ruining the game. Hey, look, that's what they want to do. They want to hit, okay? They want to hit, but, but it is hurting the game. But you know what's hurting the game more than that? 
When people like yourselves turn on television and you see those people taking the knee when they're playing our great national anthem. The only thing you could do better is if you see it, even if it's one player, leave the stadium. I guarantee things will stop. Things will stop. Just pick up and leave. Pick up and leave. Not the same game anymore, anyway. I have to say, I was concerned when I saw those when I saw him say that, that people might just do it, that there might be a bit of extra protesting going on and that supporters might get up and leave. Uh-huh. Uh, it didn't work out that way. It was quite the opposite, actually. Yeah. The, well, I thought it was quite the opposite. I'm sure not everybody uh, is, is happy that there was this mass protest after what Trump said. Not everybody in the US, that is. But it was a pretty, pretty remarkable reaction. It was unbelievable. Um, I mean, so, he's also sort of trying to put himself on the side of the NFL owners who, who everybody hates. Everybody hates their owner. Why is he doing this? You know, well, there's a number of them gave him a million dollars or more for his campaign. It's not, it's, I don't think it's the cleverest way to deal with the audience of sports fans. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who really like Steph Curry and LeBron James and these football players that he's insulting. You know, these are people are heroes to a lot of people and he's kind of He's he's putting himself. He's attacking these people. I mean, I mean, well, obviously, that's the 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 whole point of all this is that all the people that he's attacking are black. Mm. I mean, it's it's just crazy. I mean, I can't people, I can't get my head around. People how like it is. yourselves hate those people. People like yourselves hate those people. You know, the NASCAR. You see, NASCAR are are, are, are like, oh, we'll fire anyone who disrespects disrespects the flag. NASCAR apparently, there's two percent of the audience is African American. And they've, they've had four black drivers, I think, at the top level. One at the moment. He's the first for like 11 years. You know, if you look at NASCAR's demographics, it's it's like Trump supporters. You know what I mean? So they're they're obviously kind of catering to their audience in the sense that they're saying, yeah, you know, we're, we're with you on this. But obviously it's something. I mean, it's, it's beneath even – what he says is so stupid that it's almost beneath uh, kind of consideration or, or serious analysis. It's just like a, a – a, uh, a stupid old man talking nonsense. Except he's the president. Except the he's United the States. president, yeah. and he's and he's doing all this like in in public, and he's also he's alternating it between insulting North Korea. You know, it's it's like it's it's beyond it's beyond insane. I mean, the, the most recent thing that he's tweeted actually is, is really disgusting. I mean, obviously, it's something that wouldn't even occur to him. He's he's tweeting about Pat Tillman because he's kept this up like this barrage. As I'm sure everybody who's listening knows, he's kept up this barrage. Continually, oh, you know, respect the flag, respect the flag. Apparently, that's the core American value is bowing down before the flag. You know, unquestioningly, that's what American patriotism is about now. Um, but he he tweets, uh, well, he retweets somebody saying NFL player Pat Tillman joined U.S. Army in 2002. He was killed in action in 2004. He fought for our country slash freedom. Hashtag stand for our anthem. Hashtag boycott NFL. That's Trump. I mean, it's so disgusting that he would use Pat Tillman. Pat Tillman was, there was an utter scandal about this man. I mean, Pat, Tindle, Pat Tillman did join the U.S. Army. He turned down a contract. He, he was going to make, you know, nearly $4 million from the contract. He decided, no, actually, I'm going to leave the NFL. I'm going to go and join the, I think he was, he, he joined the Marines. He was in Afghanistan. And he was killed by his own guys in an accident, a friendly fire incident where the, the Americans have, have all these powerful weapons and are, are a bit jumpy, not really sure what's going on here. They, they heard a noise. They thought it was the enemy. It was Pat Tillman uh, in his vehicle. Uh, they eventually got around to telling the family about this five, five weeks after the funeral. We spoke to Pat Tillman's mother years ago about this, yeah. I mean, like a, a disgusting cover-up and a scandal you know, because they 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 were worried that this. They were so Tillman anxious that he would be uh, politicized after death. The the poster boy of the entire U.S. armed forces. Yeah. The, that the 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 narrative about the NFL player who turns down millions of dollars to fight for his country, the story was too too good for the U.S. government. They had to politicize it. They had to try and make. Uh, you know, a comic book morality tale out of Pat Tillman, exactly what Trump is doing now. By completely distorting the, the, the story so that, actually it, so that it was like the opposite of what happened. Because Pat Tillman was in Afghanistan going, this is, this is ridiculous. What, what are we doing here? Like most of the soldiers, 
you know, my, they they end up thinking, what what is happening here? Uh, he he developed a very anti George Bush attitude. He had booked a meeting with Noam Chomsky for when he got back, which he never he never made it back from Afghanistan because he fell into the cogs of the American war machine and got chewed up. And then they lied about it. And then you know, for, for because they couldn't, they thought that the truth would be too destructive. And now, years later, thirteen years after this man dies, he's being used as as a lie by this troll. It's just, it's just you beyond disgusting. Like. You mentioned the uh, Steph Curry and the, what Trump said about Steph Curry, and then LeBron James coming to his support. So this is Steve Kerr from the Golden State Warriors, their coach. And Steph Curry himself was asked, first of all, for his reaction to LeBron James's tweet defending him. I laugh because I've heard uh, that said in pickup games all the time, and that's a pretty, pretty strong, <laughs> strong statement. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's bold, it's courageous for any guy to speak up, uh, let alone a guy that has as much to, to lose as, as LeBron does and, and other notable figures in the league. So. Um, like I said, we all have to kind of stand as one as best we can. Um, you know, for me, the questions have how things have gone all summer with if I wanted to go to the White House or not. I told you yesterday, being very transparent, what my vote would have been in the meeting um, if had we had one, um, and all based on just trying to to let people know I didn't want to. You know, be applauded for an accomplishment on, on the court when you know the guy that would be uh, doing the patting on the back is somebody that doesn't, uh, I don't think, respects the majority of Americans in, the, in this country. So um, it's kind of what I stand for, and, and hopefully that message rings loud. I can speak from personal experience. Um, doesn't matter. You set it. You set aside political differences, right? So I mean, I've had the pleasure to meet with Reagan. George Bush, Clinton, George W. Bush, Obama. Um, I didn't necessarily agree with all of them, but it was an incredible honor to be in their presence. Um, there was a respect for the office and also a respect, not, not only from us, but from the president himself. Um, and that goes both ways. And I think uh, we would, in normal times, very easily be able to set aside political differences and go visit and have a great time and and that'd be awesome but these are not ordinary times um probably the most device divisive times in my life uh i guess since vietnam but i was just a kid i don't remember too much about vietnam but uh, because of the differences that exist in the country um the president made it really really difficult um for us to honor that institution. And um, our differences, I think, in terms of our team and our organization's values are so dramatically different. And I'm talking in terms of inclusion and, and civil discourse and dignity. And it's hard for us every day. You know, we're seeing the things he's saying. I thought yesterday his comments about the NFL players was as bad as anything he has said to this point. So it's awful. You're talking about young men who are peacefully protesting police brutality and racism, racial inequality, peacefully protesting, hallmarks of our country. Come on, it's, this has been very difficult for us to, uh, to have to reconcile. All right, we're going to pick this up with Dave Zirin in a couple of moments. Also today, the ladies football final attracted 46,826 supporters that compares with 22,433 at the Women's Champions League final. Yeah. And 28,000 is another number that you gave me this morning for the European Championship final. So uh, I would say punching at a pretty decent weight there. We're going to be talking about yeah. the doubles victory later, but you were one of those at the match. Yeah, it was extraordinary um, because I think there was there were struggles in the win that it was going to be over 35,000, which is what it was last year. Uh and once I heard that the Upper Cusack was being opened, I was like, wow, well, geez, that looks like it could be 38, 39, maybe even 40,000. By the time the ball was about to be thrown in, the Upper Cusack was nearly entirely full. And it was, I was sitting in the, the Hogan, and looking across it, it was actually, it was just, uh, it was a pretty stunning and pretty exciting uh, thing to see even before the game had started. 
that uh, this is sort of the level of support that uh, that a women's sporting event could get in Ireland. It's, uh, it was an extraordinary number, and it was a uh, great day as well. Okay, non-World Service members, this next bit goes out just for you guys. The people already signed up, well, they've moved on to the Dave's Iron Shot already, but you lot are going to have to suck it up and listen to my weekly sales pitch. Okay, you can, well, you probably already have skipped through it, but if not, then let me give you an idea of the sort of stuff that you missed last week, starting with my new best friend. Uh, Owen, I like you and I like your style. That man's name is Murad Muhammad, a one-time security guard of Muhammad Ali. He went on to become known as Kid Promoter, being the youngest promoter in the history of the state of New Jersey. Murad, it turns out, can tell quite a story. So when I went in there, I saw this kid. He had raggedy shoes on, raggedy shirt, but he was built like Hercules. And I said, son, can you fight? He said, yeah, I can fight. Can you promote? I said, well, I can promote if you can fight. Murad Muhammad, it's been amazing spending some time with you today. You mean it's over? We are all about to witness an event that's never happened before in television sports. A top boxing contender coming inside the walls of a prison to fight an inmate. What kind of time did you do for what? Small things. Burglary, uh, harassment. I beat up four cops. Beat up a few cops. Small stuff like that. I mean, you know, it's a bit of an umbrella term, really. Who knows (laughs) what harassment is? So you're not in favour of splitting Dublin into three teams, four teams, five teams, then Kevin, no? Um, no, not when I'm playing anyway. <laughs> Sounds good. They don't want to do it because they don't believe this would be a good thing to do. I think they've believed for too long that the market is going to solve this problem. But I, I mean, who seriously believes I that know. anymore? I know. That's the, that's the craziest thing it would be I possible know. to believe. 25% of kids aged eight and over can name four gambling companies or more. That's extraordinary. I thought he'd live forever, you know, it's his boyish attitude towards life and the, the smile that he had and everything else. I guess I thought he'd live forever and maybe Jimmy did too, you know, because he, he, all his life as a sports broadcaster, as a person involved in sport, he lived his dream. Kevin McManaman, the latest Ken Early Political Podcast. Samantha Thomas there, who gave great insight into gambling ads and sport. Uncle Jim and Jimmy McGee. And loads more besides in the last few days alone. And we're going to have US Murph coming up this week too. So you can support independent journalism. Join us today for five euro a month plus fat. You'll get daily shows, a member's induction pack, and no more annoying ads like this one in your Monday podcast. I should also mention that Monday shows are released to our members' feeds first. And members also get first shout on tickets to live shows, including our end of year shows in the Liberty Hall Theatre in Dublin. We're going to be releasing those ones in the next week. Get on to secondcaptains.com, join today, and I will like you, and I will like your style. Uh, Owen, I like you, and I like your style. Dave Zyron is with us now to talk about a crazy couple of days in the US, Dave, even by the recent standards of crazy days in the US. We were trying to touch on the what motivation there could have been for Trump here to bring this up in the first place, the kneeling for the anthem, this, this protest that's been going on on and off for the last year. When Why did he bring it up, do you think, when it was a topic that had pretty much died away? Uh, because Donald Trump has a lizard brain that is uniquely attuned to the worst instincts and the worst angels in the nature of his audience. And he looked out at that audience in Huntsville, Alabama, mere miles from the stronghold of George Wallace, the segregationist Alabama senator from the 1950s and 60s, and he thought to himself, I am going to demonize black dissenting athletes, people who kneel during the anthem. That is the red meat that they will eat up. But Trump just couldn't contain himself. He also then had to blast the NFL for not for being too concerned about traumatic brain injuries. And he blasted the NFL as a product and said that owners should fire these players. So what he did was he threatened the constitutional freedoms of these athletes he then threatened their livelihoods, and then he called them, and I quote, son, son, the bitch, you know, and so he insulted the mothers of these players using the most coarse and foul, foul language, which would be terrible coming from someone in a bar, let alone the president of the United States. And that's what created what Charles Woodson, the, the announcer on ESPN, he called it, which he called it, pick a side Sunday, meaning you have to pick a side. Are you on the side of Trump? Are you on the side of the players whose livelihoods he's threatening, whose families he is castigating? Which side are you on? And I think Donald Trump bit off way more than he could chew. He overstepped his bounds dramatically, and it showed itself on Sunday. He said players shouldn't take a knee. Well, guess what happened? The largest anthem protest in the history of sports took place 
Over 200 athletes took part in it, coaches, not just athletes, though, coaches, trainers, even owners, some of the people who have been some of the most generous supporters to the Trump campaign, decided to side with their sport instead of their candidate. And so this, to me, is just desserts for an embarrassment of a world leader that we have here in the United States. Dave, when you say he bit off more than he can chew, what is it about sport and the NFL in particular, do you think, that makes it such a powerful enemy to make for Donald Trump as compared to every other facet of life in America that he has taken on and managed to be, uh, sort of sail through? You know what? That's a great question because, you know, Donald Trump never played football and it, American football. I know I have to say that for your audience. <laughs> And maybe it's the violence of American football. Maybe that's, that's what explains this. But my experience in talking to athletes has definitely showed that there's a different kind of bond that exists in an American football locker room compared to other sports. Call it American football exceptionalism, if you will. Maybe it's the fear of brain injury. Who knows what it is? But there's a bond there that they call the brotherhood that even in this era of free agency and player movement, it really transcends team, maybe because of free agency and player movement. But it's very, very tight-knit. And it, it, can, it can adopt a kind of I am Spartacus attitude, where an injury to one is an injury to all. So already players were upset about the blackballing of Colin Kaepernick, the political quarterback who took a knee last year for four straight months to protest police violence. Even if these players did not agree with Colin Kaepernick's cause or did not agree with him during the anthem, they strongly agreed that he should not be blackballed from the sport. So that flame was already lit. And then Donald Trump poured gasoline all over it. And if so, the, if the attitude then becomes, you threaten one of our livelihoods, you threaten all of our livelihoods. You disparage one of us, you disparage all of us. And then there's the SOB comment, which I don't think we can overlook because another thing I can say about NFL locker rooms, and I've and I, I, I got to be honest with you, I just do not see this in other sports. The NFL mom has kind of a special place in the locker room as somebody who gets a great deal of respect and effectively, if she wants it, becomes an effective mother to all of the players on the team. So when you say something like that, you really do start a fire, the kind of fire that Donald Trump could not control and the kind of fire that he could not expect. One striking image, actually, over the weekend, Dave, was that of uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers player Alejandro Villanueva um, being the only player to actually stand out there uh, during the anthem. He was he was evidently able to ignore the calls of this brotherhood that you're talking about. What did you make of, of what Villanueva did? Well, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, it's about a choice that you make. Uh, in terms of the anthem. And so, obviously, I have no problem with Villanueva's choice. Um, I think that, I will say this, though, I think that the Pittsburgh Steelers, as a team, uh, made a mistake in what they did, which is they chose to not come out for the anthem, which was a similar decision that the Tennessee Titans and Seattle Seahawks did. But while the Tennessee Titans and Seattle Seahawks did it as a, a united statement of protest against Trump, the Steelers' motivation for not coming out was their coach, Mike Tomlin, who in what I thought was just a terrible statement, said, we feel like um, our players shouldn't have to choose between protesting or standing. And so, therefore, we all are just going to stay in together and avoid this entire political spectacle. I mean, what a sorry thing to do. And so I could totally understand why Villanueva said, well, wait a minute, I am going to make a choice. And I bet there were players on that Pittsburgh team who would have made the choice to kneel because every team had a player who kneeled or protested. But it, it is definitely bothersome that the Steelers made that choice. So, yeah, I have no problem with what Villanueva did. That's part of the point of this whole thing is that, you know, the national anthem, this is a political moment. And that if players want to respond to that moment in their own way, uh, they should have the right to do so. One of the things that uh, Donald Trump talks about, uh, and, you know, he's not the only one who, who says this, but he talks about the NFL's, uh, declining ratings, and he blames a couple of things for this. One is that he thinks the the uh, sort of anti-concussion rules are, are turning people off. Um, but he also, the, the main thing that's wrong with it is he, he says these protests themselves, it's disrespect to the flag and, you know, all the phrases that he uses. Essentially, the politics are turning people off. How much credence do you give that argument? Do you feel that American sports fans are significant? Zero. Zero. And I'll tell you why. 
ratings are down dramatically in baseball. Baseball, until actually this week, had no protesting athletes. Ratings are down dramatically in NASCAR, which is the sport that Trump is getting people to, wants people to watch. Uh, because I guess he loves the fact that they said they would fire people who didn't stand for the anthem. And they also support the Confederate flag, which Trump, who is a white supremacist, does not criticize. So, I mean, just to put that out there for your audience, we have a white supremacist as president of the United States. Um, but So sports, organized sports, the ratings are down generally. Now, the NFL also has other problems, which are not connected to political athletes. I mean, there is the lessening interest because of concern of traumatic brain injury. That's very real. You know, the number of players who play Pop Warner or youth football, youth American football, that's down dramatically in the United States. And the average age of an NFL audience member, of people who watch the game on television, is the youngest in all of sports in the United States, and it's roughly 36, which when I read that statistic, that was actually older than I thought it would be have the median age be 36. So, you know, this is a, a crisis that exists all across sports, which is how do we create revenue in a culture where I'll tell you about like my nine-year-old son, uh, when he's not playing basketball, he does all the time. He's watching like videos on YouTube of people playing video games. He's not even playing his own video game. I don't even understand the joy of watching someone else play video games on YouTube. I don't understand it, but it's something all his friends do. You know, it's, it's, changing. The same way 50 years ago in the United States, the most popular sports were things like boxing and horse racing. These things change. And that's happening in the NFL right now. Using politics as a scapegoat for it uh, does not begin to explain these other factors at play. Dave, the reaction of the NFL is interesting, right? Well, in particular, I'm talking about the owners and some of the for example, Rex Ryan, who's now an analyst in ESPN, well-known coach, he introduced Donald Trump. He was one of his biggest supporters. Introduced him at a raffle, at a Buffalo rally in the lead up to the the election, or at least the primaries. He says, "Now I apologize for being pissed off, but that's it. Right away, I am associated with what Donald Trump stands for because I introduced him. I never signed up for that. I never wanted that." Which begs the question, what did these guys, these owners who were pouring millions into Trump's campaign, these guys like Rex Ryan who were offering him public support, what exactly did they sign up for? This, this is the Trump that everyone was waiting for. Well, there are two ways to look at this. Um, on the one hand, we can look at this very cynically. And they understand that Trump attacked, attacked the National Football League. And so if they don't defend the National Football League, they might not be working in the National Football League. There would be no career for Rex Ryan in the NFL, if he got on television and said, Trump is right, the sport sucks, these players should be fired. There's no, there's no future for him working for the National Football which is effectively what he does by working for ESPN, doing football commentary. He's working for the NFL. So we could look at it very cynically like that. But I would be inclined for us to also look at it a little differently, because I've seen this happen in the United States among all kinds of people. So why should NFL people be... Um, extinct from this. And this is what happens sometimes. As long as the bully is picking on someone else, you can put blinders on. You don't feel it. You don't have empathy for the immigrants, for the Muslims, for the woman, for the people he, he has allegedly sexually assaulted. You don't have empathy for them. But then they attack you. They attack your friends. And then it becomes a very different question. And it becomes a question of like, oh, my God, it's me now. What, what, you know, and and what, where do I stand? And now I have to pick a side. So that's one of the things about Donald Trump is that, you know, he's alienated so many people. He's created so many strange bedfellows. And then he will, I think he will always have this 30% of this country who will support him no matter what he does. Mm-hmm. Unless, of course, he, you know, is, you know, calls for Confederate monuments to fall down. <laughs> that might be the only thing. Do you, Dave, feel that, that uh, causes his base to walk away from him? Do you feel that there ultimately is anything different about this? Because I mean, I was watching watching this yesterday, you know, on Twitter. You've got this totally farcical spectacle of the United States president alternately insulting some of America's most popular sportsmen, um, and and also insulting the leader of nuclear armed North Korea, a country that he. 
knows yeah. and understands very little about. He's kind of switching between these two things, just lobbing insults, and everyone's watching it. And I'm thinking, well, this is this is just another Saturday. You know, the, he's not under supervision. It's yeah. it's Saturday today. He's you know, but but do you not do you not kind of begin to feel a sense of exhaustion with this? Like it's it's kind of it defies analysis like it defies commentary it's so stupid and it's such a disgrace that and and everybody yeah. can see that that it's it's almost impossible to say anything about this anymore it's like well what is left to say about this well do you've do you got to feel demoralized what, what what's so scary is that if we don't keep speaking out demonstrating the risk is that it becomes normalized and then there's the expectation that the next president will also have to be this big of a horse's ass instead of us trying to move on from this. And it's just an absurd spectacle. And it's also a dangerous spectacle, because right now on, on the U.S. Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, which is populated by people who are U.S. citizens, they are in dire danger as we are having this conversation. Absolutely dire. Uh, and you would never know that from the President of the United States. Now, is it because people from Puerto Rico are, are brown? There are a lot of people who think that that is absolutely the case. And I, it's very disturbing that you don't have one tweet about Puerto Rico, but all of these tweets about, about the NFL, you know, and several NFL players, I mean, they said two things, two messages really came out, uh, like uh, quarterback Alex Smith of the Chiefs, and several players echoed this. They said, why does he have more awful things to say about neo-Nazis uh, than he does about, uh, the, I know, why does he have more awful things to say about NFL players than neo-Nazis? That was one thing that a lot of players said. These are just like NFL players, and they've noticed this as well. And, and, and the, uh, the other sentiment that, I mean, just really <laughs> rang through from these players is, doesn't he have something better to do? And it's, I think it's a very reasonable question, given the crises that exist, not just in the world, but in our country here, in Puerto Rico. I mean, there's still people in Florida without power. There's still people in Houston without power. And just the idea that he's just... Um, willingly blind for this stuff so he can get take part in culture war, Twitter culture war. I mean, to call it beneath the dignity of the office is to, I feel like, almost state the obvious to a too great a degree. Dave, just before we let you go, one more one on this. The first time we spoke to you, I think it must have been about 10 years ago on the radio show we used to be on, and the tenor of that conversation and a couple of conversations we had with you around that time was about the essential essentially the unwillingness of sports stars to speak out about anything, really. The sort of Michael Jordan model, just putting everything above putting commerce and putting their careers above any other concerns. Are you impressed with the fact that some massive sports people are at the centre of this? Colin Kaepernick is the guy who's gotten this conversation going. LeBron James feels free to call the president a bum, which is almost more as surreal as anything else that's happened in the last few weeks. Yeah, I mean, I'll say so. I really wish that uh, maybe we could unearth or post that interview from 10 years ago because I, I imagine what I said, just because this is what I've always believed, is that people should not mistake uh, quietude with, non, with unconsciousness. And even though it might not be 1968 or, you know, it, it wasn't what we're seeing today, that in 2007 you did still have the rumblings of political athletes. You still had statements that some athletes were starting to make. You were starting to see people being inspired by the campaign of President Obama and the election of a first black president to say, hey, wait a minute, maybe this is a political moment where I can speak. You were starting to see that in 2007 in an interesting way. And I think that those people in a lot of respects are, are, the, are the, I'm sorry, this sounds like a cliche, but are, are kind of the real heroes. And I know that sounds like a cliche. But it's beautiful to see people come out in big numbers, but it's much harder to come out when you know the numbers are going to be small. So all the athletes who did that in the 2000s and in the 1990s, they're the ones who kept this ember alive, and they're the ones who today are advising this new generation of players, and they're the people who really should not be forgotten. Dave Zyron, listen, great to catch up. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Give a damn about the money, being shot, take the title, take it all, and go to jail tomorrow. This chump has got everybody scared. Scared of what? 
You told him I don't have nothing but a prayer. Well, chump, all I need is a prayer, because if that prayer reached the right man, not only will George Fulman fall, the mountains will fall. Oh, my God, he's won the title back at 32. Miss Brash Young Boxer, it's something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. You saw him on television, there was no one more beautiful. You saw him walking down the street, he was a beautiful thing to see. He moved around the ring, he had style and class, he was tall and good looking. Everything you'd want from a boxer, wrestler, football player. And to be honest with you, he belonged to the arts because he had poem, poetry, he had it all. Specimen, fighting machine. You know, he was handsome, he was articulate, he was funny, charismatic, and was whooping ass too. We've mentioned NASCAR a couple of times, and Trump did tweet that he was so proud of NASCAR and its supporters and fans, they won't put up with disrespecting our country or our flag. They said it loud and clear. Although, interestingly, Dale Earnhardt Jr., the biggest star of the sport, tweeted a JFK quote saying all Americans are granted rights to peaceful protest those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable so that it was an interesting dissenting voice that's just come out over the last few hours. Yeah and uh, Trump was uh, tweeting this morning in his usual morning tweet storm the issue of kneeling has nothing to do with race uh, it <laughs> is about respect for our country flag and national anthem and this is like this again is classic Trump this idea that the issue only became uh, live when he started talking about it. Colin Kaepernick a year ago said this was about police brutality against uh, people of colour. And for Trump to come in and then say, oh, no, I'm actually going to set the terms of what this, what this is, is about, all about. This even though it's, started up, yeah, yeah. Even though it's been going on for a year and it started under President Obama, the problem actually only began when I started talking about it and I now get a chance to frame the discussion around it. It's just, it's just so crazy. I mean, you know, this, this phenomenon, myself and yourself were talking about it, Kieran, of, of you know, I, I think I said to you, Steph Curry must surely be the most popular athlete in America. And you said, well, whatever people thought of him the other day, I'd say, you know, 60% of America is now in favor of Steph Curry and 40%. <laughs> whatever that, that number is, that hardcore number that just agrees with Trump or just supports Trump. I mean, that that, that, is, a, that is a reality of the current landscape it sort of almost doesn't matter what he says there's this kind of hardcore of people who will go yeah you know i agree i agree with that he's you know he, once again he's he's said the right thing there and it doesn't matter what he says and this is why it's such a problem that he says such such da- such dangerous stuff all the time this is like he just makes everything worse every time he speaks he's making something worse you know, there is, a, there is a ton of people, there are millions of people in America now thinking about that son of a bitch Kaepernick and that son of a bitch Curry and that's, that son of a bitch LeBron, by the way, who on Friday, this, these thoughts couldn't have been further from their mind. And now it's like, oh, you know, we're, we're against these people now. You know, so it's, it's like everything he's doing is just sort of feeding into this like kind of poisonous cycle. You know what I mean? It's like... Everything he he says just makes something worse, and this is, and we we're talking about this thing. This is far more serious thing. I mean, the, the of the North Korea stuff that's happening, which he seems to treat with the same seriousness. In fact, he tweets more about the NFL than about North Korea. You know what I mean? Mm. And not at all about Puerto Rico, as Dave just not, said. Not there. about Puerto Rico, although he did have a pop at the And not at all at about, the Emmys. about race, which is the important part of the debate. He's talking about flag and talking about all that kind of stuff. But he, yeah. it's this. It's just when you when you've got this kind of utter like utter poison and stupidity spilling out from the highest place. the problem i mean the problem it wouldn't be a problem if he wasn't who he was and he didn't have this you know hardcore of people who are just going to be on his side because to not be on his side anymore to change sides would be to surrender and to admit stage. that you were an idiot yeah i, I was i was wrong i surrendered well, rex ryan did it yeah, Rex Ryan has admitted he's an idiot. Well, right, right. I mean, like Trump, Trump gave the owners even nowhere to go. What could they do? Agree with him? I mean, he was saying basically, number one, I'm more popular than your sport. Number two, your sport is is no good anyway because of all your stupid rules and concussion, which is which they the, the concussion thing is their least favorite subject. And then and then just call, then angers all of their players, attacks these players, and angers all all of their players for no reason, just completely gratuitously. You know, they, you know, some of them, as he says, uh, some of these guys are friends of mine. Some of them are. 
You know, I mean, as he, he mentioned Bob Kraft. Oh, Bob, the last time I saw him, he gave me a Super Bowl ring. Trump and Putin have, have two of Bob Kraft's suits. Look, he has so many. Like, he's, he's, he's handing them out to Trump. I don't know if Trump stole his or get, was given it or just held it. I mean, maybe he, maybe there was no Super Bowl ring. <laughs> he could just be making the whole thing up. It could be a story that, that Putin has told him that he misremembers as happening in his own life. I mean, who knows? But even somebody like him can't side with He can't. <laughs> You know, he he might even agree. I, I don't even know. There might be there, there obviously some of the NFL owners. At least they think Kaepernick, this guy Kaepernick, is more trouble than he's worth. We know that they all think that. Maybe some of them even agree that Kaepernick is a son of a bitch. They can't publicly side with Trump after everything he said. He he's he, he can't even side with the people he's trying or the people he's trying to buddy up with can't even be on his side. These these wealthy plutocrats who have who have blackballed this player, even they can't be seen to publicly stand with Trump. This isn't this is not going very well. I think we need to leave Trump behind for today. That's that's all. I can only manage a certain amount in any given podcast. So let's move on to the All Ireland Ladies final, which is won by Dublin after losing the last three finals. Elaine Buckley is co-host of the Fair Game podcast and she's popped in. Hi Elaine. Hi Owen, how's it going? Ah pretty good thanks. And we've got Diana O'Hora, scorer of the Mayo goal that beat the dubs. Back in 2003 for Mayo's last All-Ireland final win and it remains that way. Unfortunately, down for you over the weekend. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad, Owen, considering. We were considering, indeed. We were, we'll get into the Mayo side of things, but we were debating last week, Elaine, if the absence of Cork in the final was going to, in any way, make this less special for Dublin if they were to get over the line. It didn't look that way yesterday. It didn't, it didn't seem too too relevant who was in the other corner when they were celebrating. Yeah, no, I'd absolutely just... I just disagree with that completely because I think the standard of football that was played on, on, on that pitch yesterday is testament to Cork and how far they've pushed the other teams like they've just forced other teams to rethink their setups raise the bar what do they have to do to beat them um, May are the, were the ones who beat them in this campaign beat them in the semi-final beat them by two points but um, the, the speed the pace the skill sets that were on show on the pitch yesterday I think Cork, Cork were there in a way and, and, and that was them So what did Dublin bring yesterday because it wasn't without its hiccups there, there were a few goal chances missed particularly when Mayo had a couple of players sin binned they got there though and they, they really sort of ramped it up in the last 10 minutes what did they bring do you think that they maybe didn't have in the last three finals yeah, the first half was was um, the first half was a bit ropey. There was a couple of moments where I was like, "Oh God, this is going to be this is going to be one of those days." Um, particularly when Noel Healy, like after Goldie breaking through, running the whole length of the pitch, gives a great pass. Noel, Noel does all the hard work and hits the post. Mm. I was just like, "Oh God!" And then Sinead Ahern uh, missing the penalty as well. Like in fairness to Mayo, um, they they went down to thirteen players. You know, they were they were at 13 players for the last five minutes of the first half and the second five minutes of the of the second half and they only went in three points down at half time and Cora actually just missed a free just on the half time hooter so it could have just been two um, and I just, just think that that came back to get to get them in the end but Dublin just in the second half I just felt watching it and I watched it back again this morning like the last three years of Demons just came out in the last 10 minutes of the match how do you mean? Um, just kind of the relish with, they, with which they took their goals, like in particular Sarah McCaffrey's goal. Um, that came from a turnover from Goldie in her own corner. Turns over the ball in the, the, the special way that she does. It's so clean. There's, there's just the perfect mix of physicality and skill. She gets the ball out to Noel Healy, playing corner forward, but who, but who was back in a sweeper position, who runs it up the pitch. They win their free. They take it sensibly. It gets to Sarah McCaffrey and she just, the finish on that goal was spectacular. Diane, what about Mayo? Are there going to be a lot of regrets? Um, well, I think Elaine summarised the game really, really well there. And, you know, I suppose coming from the losing side, um, you can see how well Dublin played in a, you know, as a team and the team performance. I'll always say if I'm coaching a team to train harder than you play, and at least if you fall short, you should really match what the intensity is of a day. But the last 10 minutes, either Mayo were dead on their feet from having played, you know, such a lengthy period with only 13 players outfield, on the field rather. And, you know, I, I think discipline kind of hit Mayo again. They kind of have a history in the last three or four games where they seem to be getting, picking up a couple of yellow cards. And looking at the fact that Sinead Hearn scored seven frees, um, that does have a huge impact when you look at the ones that we'd missed. So we're, you know, as a team, we seem to be giving away a scorable freeze um, in saying that Sinead's an excellent free taker, like there's no two ways about it. And, you know, last year in the semi-final in Breffney Park, she took the pressure, the biggest pressure kick and not a very favourable angle to 
to get Dublin to the final. And the last 10 minutes, I think as well, it showed what Dublin brought on really contributed um, to their to their play on the field. You know, they really ramped it up um, and they really pushed on really hard and really heavy power and pace. And, you know, just looking at what Noel Healy did on the field yesterday, I'm still in awe. Like, it was a masterpiece performance um, from start to finish, work ethic, turnovers. Um, what I would have hoped to have seen maybe... Um, I would have loved to see a bit more of the Mayo midfield, you know, driving forward at the pace in what Dublin were doing, breaking us down right through the centre. So, yeah, there'll be some regrets, that's for sure. It's interesting. They'd be, they'd be heartbroken. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting watching the women's game, Diane, because you mentioned the lack of discipline there and there's all this to and froing over the last few years about the black card in the in the men's game and debates over whether or not such and such a decision should be black or yellow. It doesn't really make that much difference unless you happen to lose one of your best players because they can be replaced. The sin bin is much more of a killer, especially when you lose a couple of players because you're gone for 10 minutes of a 60-minute game. And really, as you're saying, Mayo actually didn't concede as much. Dublin probably didn't punish them as much as they should have in those periods. But if you're losing those players, you lose three over the course of a game, the ones who are still there are going to be knackered by the end of it. Absolutely, and um, the, the changes that Dublin made, you know, in the last 15 minutes just really turned the screw on, I suppose, the exhaustion levels that Mayo had, you know, had, um, I suppose, suffered from playing with 13 players. Um, you know, they also lost two substitutions because they would have had to change Ashing Tarpey, to put Ashing Tarpey on who saved the penalty with Yvonne Byrne with the, with the yellow card. So they had to take off Kara White and then to put her back on again. So there's two substitutions already made, which left them with only three to make for the rest of the entire game. So, you know, you're under pressure. You don't plan for these things. And obviously Yvonne Byrne was doing the best she could um, in, in trying to, you know, obviously sacrifice her, you know, that foul at that time in the box. Um, and it did, it did work in a way known to the fact that she could have conceded a goal at that stage. She made a decision not to and lucky enough the penalty was saved. Um, the yellow card, I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, that it could be considered in the men's game and it has been. And LGFA have brought in a number of things into the sport, like the yellow card, um, like the, the no pick up off the ground. Um, the, the, clock you know, count, the clock counting backwards. The clock and as it, well. it, it being yeah. taken, that's a no-brainer. It's such a good idea. Take it out of the hands of the referee and just have have somebody else there uh, have it ticking down and, and finish at zero. <laughs> it, it seems so straightforward. Yeah, it does. It's very innovative and I'm not sure why they haven't looked into it, but it really would be a great advantage for the men's game. And again, coming from a Mayo point of view last week, not knowing how much time is going to be played, whether it be the first or second half, you know, I think it ended up like 12 minutes in total by the end of the match, so it's significant. Was there, obviously Mayo are going to rely, Diane, on Coruscant, but... Was there a little bit too much reliance on her? And did she try to take on too much? It seemed as though she she was shooting from difficult angles, difficult distances, and it didn't seem to it just didn't seem to work between her and the rest of the forwards. Um, I suppose one of the things when Finbar Egan used to coach us, and you know, you know, we'd sometimes as forwards, and I would have played with her, you'd look for the ball to be let off to a little bit more, and it's not really a case of trust. It's probably if you shoot. If you take 10 shots and you score five, you're shooting at 50%. If you take 20 shots and you score, you know, 50%, again, you've got 10. So, you know, probably the way the core would have been coached would be always to take that shot. And sometimes they come off and sometimes they don't. Yesterday, I think what was a little bit of a worry and you could, I, I think if you're a player on the field and you see that the halfbacks were getting into these really good scoring positions and then they froze, they stopped. Now, if you look at the Dublin team, the fact that both half forward lines kind of pushed very close to midfield, that's where the battle was. And if your half back broke with the ball, they were very effective moving forward. The same as the Mayo half backs, but they actually went looking for Cora. And, you know, that's a little bit of a worry, but it's a testament to Dublin's defending because it means that they, they weren't looking for other players out wide. And we got sucked in a little bit. And when you don't have your half backs taking those very scorable um, opportunities, um, and looking for Cora, it's very easy read for the Dublin defence. It's very easy for them to defend that and put Cora under that pressure when she's given the ball and at those positions. Um, so yeah, it's hard. It's hard for her to carry that level of responsibility. But I think that we got a little bit sucked in, and Dublin did a good job of forcing us into the middle. Yeah, and I think as well there there probably were times where Cora's movement, where she 
she was still so intent on taking the ball that she actually blocked up some of those corridors that you're talking about that the Mayo half-back line were running into, that Cora was so intent on taking the ball off those players that basically all she did was run out towards them and bring two Dublin defenders with her as well. So, like, you, it's hard to fault Cora in ways, but in other ways, you know, surely she gets out of the way and that opens up those corridors even further for the Mayo half-back line. But, you know... Again, it's it's hard to be critical because it's Cora's scoring that has got them to this position in the first place. Yeah, and you know I totally see where you're coming from with that. I mean, it wouldn't make more sense to do the placebo run and spend some time over on the, you know, over by the 45 flag or the 21 yard line, the sideline. Um, if you're going to do that, you know, make those dummy runs. Um, I mean, I questioned it. I questioned Mayo players after the Donegal game to say, was this a tactic? The Cora runs out for the ball. And the Mayo player chose not to give it to her because many times she would actually make all those same runs, Fiona McHale coming through and so on and so forth, Aileen Gilroy, and she'd run towards them and they'd almost be forced to to give the ball as well as they know they can trust her, that she's probably better, better at taking scores than them, that they give it to her running straight. In the Donegal game, the opposite happened. Cora made all these runs, drew two defenders with her and the Mayo player refused almost and went and took their own scores. I actually thought that was a tactic. And then in the um, the Cork game, then I was expecting that to happen as well because Cork may have been watching that and was like, you know, actually they're not giving the ball to Cora as much now at all. They're going themselves, which would which means you get to use the wing a lot more. Um, but then they did look for Cora a lot more again in the Cork match. So, you know, there was a good balance of it. Yesterday, I'd say, you know, she, more than anyone in the world, she'd be her own worst critic. She'd be absolutely heartbroken. And I, I think with the level of responsibility she takes on her shoulder as a massive leader and inspiration to so many kids um, around the country in a Mayo, um, you know, it'll hurt her now. It'll really, really hurt her. And, you know, as you, you asked there and probably one of your first questions was about regrets, everyone will have them. But if things, if a little bit of luck had fallen differently, you know, Mayo, I suppose, if we didn't have the Simbins and a couple of things like that, um, would have really been in contention and it would have been just the kick or two of a ball that everyone talked about. Elaine, the attendance figure was 46,286, which smashes the record. Uh, we're looking at a few of the numbers here and it's actually more more people attended yesterday's game than the Rugby World Cup final, the Women's Rugby World Cup final and European Championship final combined, which is really astonishing. What was it about this year that seemed to catch the imagination? Um, I think it was the, the, the two teams involved. Both both teams have, have great great sport who who will and particularly Mayo who, who will travel up but it was like it, it was kind of known that it was going to break the record based on va- yeah. on advanced ticket sales and then on Friday evening kind of got word that the upper stand of, of the upper Cusick stand was being opened which hasn't happened before so it was like right it's it's really going to break it and I have to say when, when the teams were doing their pre-match parade yesterday I was kind of in the upper Hogan in the press box and looking across at that full Cusick stand I actually just got so emotional looking at it because like, just seeing all the green and, bl- green and red and blue flags waving and the reception that the teams were getting um, it's to beat the record by 12,000 is just incredible but I think now right we're at that level where they can get a huge crowd at Croke Park for the final you know you look back to the semi-finals four weeks ago you, if you had 5% of that figure there you'd, be, you'd have been doing well so I think the next big thing is to address the disconnect between the finals day and the rest of the championships well, how do you do that? that's the thing like there's hopefully yesterday you know maybe people went to watch Dublin play for the first time um, you know, the game of the year last year was the semi-final between Dublin and Mayo and that was down in Breffney Park and there was very few people there. So you're just kind of hoping that people go along to finals day, see these teams in action and just buy into it and say, geez, they, that, that, that was a great match. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to support them. Yeah, and a, like a, a double header for the semi-finals in Croker as well. I mean, I think that Croker maybe, you know, the, the, for whatever reason, there is a glamour to playing games in Croke Park and you have to offset that against maybe... Okay, what atmosphere do you get in Crow Park if there's ten thousand at a semi-final double header? On the other hand, ten thousand people at an All-Ireland semi-final is another chance to inspire the you know the players of the of the next generation. Maybe that's something that they should be looking at. You know that that, that you fix it for a Saturday, you know, before one of the All-Ireland football semi-finals or something like that, and and take it from there. But I mean, what we saw yesterday was it is extraordinary. But as you say. They have to build on it now. That's the that's the challenge. Yeah, that's the challenge, and it it does come back to kind of scheduling of fixtures and availability of pitches and stuff like that. But even playing, even for team that Mayo team to be going out and playing in Croke Park for their the most important game of their year, 
having they played a league match against Dublin there earlier on in the year in March. That was actually a double header for the Dublin Ross Common men's game. Um, but you know that experience of going out onto that pitch, the the noise, just the the magnitude of the stadium, even kind of the way you enter in by your bu- by the bus underground or. Mm. On the, in the tunnel around to the dressing rooms, that can be jarring for players on on Ireland mm. Day as well. And if it's if for a lot of that Mayo panel, it was the first time they experienced that, and you know that can be a, a factor and, and add to the nerves as well. So I just love to see, particularly more women who play football. Like there's such a large number of women who play club football at every level around the country. Why aren't they going to watch these matches? Like yesterday, you would have seen a masterclass in say Sinead Goldrick like her turnovers Fiona McHale her pace and power how she runs with the ball and players just bounce off her because they can't get near her and Sinead Ahern's free taking all these different skills that you can see in action that you can then take on board in, into your own training no matter what level you play So yeah so you're suggesting that the women are going to see the, the, the final but aren't going to see other rounds Dan what do you think on that Is have you any bright ideas as, as to how to translate the the, the sort of following, the latent following that's there into a year-round or at least a summer-round phenomenon? I think that, um, you know, um, women in sport has become a really hot topic the last couple of years and people like Elaine and Fair Game Podcast and yourselves and the media. I think from a marketing point of view, uh, Lidl have been amazing for Ladies Gaelic Football and now there's going to be a focus more towards the grassroots because, you know, like why people leave and so on and so forth. Um, I'm sure from a PR point of view, and Derek has done a great job, and he's moving, I think, actually to Paralympics um, Ireland now. But he's done a great job being involved in different um, initiatives they've come up with um, to get people to come to these matches and to advertise the game a lot more. The marketing fit of Little has been brilliant, and they've put in loads of work. And I'd say now they need to kind of go back a little bit, do some focus groups, um, a little bit more research, you know, and to find out what it is that gets people to the matches. How do you tap into that? Um, why do they go to one match over another? Why isn't there the same excitement around the women's game when it's so exciting? Like, as Elaine said, the skills that are on display. Any parent with any kids that have any interest in sport, I mean, it's a fantastic environment to be around, whether it's be for the academic benefits behind it and your future and being involved in sport, what it gives you, like moving forward in your own professional life. Um, to also, like the fun and the enjoyment of a family day out going to one of these games. Um, I agree with Elaine, like the game in Breffney Park last year was, it was just really, it was fantastic. I was so happy to have been there. And again, I met people there from Mayo who were driving from Castle Knock and they have a full family. And the reason that they came was because their little kids play with Bridget's, you know, and, you know, in the creche and all that kind of thing. They're very young but it's a great opportunity for them to go as a family to support a Mayo team because that's where their, their parents are from. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of work um, left to do and it's to capitalise and build on this and to try and increase um, pe- people attending these matches all the way through the year, you know, to all of the games moving forward. And hopefully some better locations will be picked next year that will actually suit people travelling um, for these games. One more point out of that as well is that last week we saw a level of coverage in the national media about this final that we hadn't ever seen anything close to before as well. So you have to take that into account as well, that on the back of media coverage comes massive crowds. So, you know, there, like there's a lot of learning to be, to, be, to be taken from that as well, I think. All right, listen, Diana Hora, thanks so much for talking to us and Elaine Buckley for coming to studio. Thanks, Mill. Thanks very much, Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodworth, statisticians, dietitians. And as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. I see the way you're looking at me, Murph. And yes, I am thinking of launching a campaign to get the sin bin reintroduced <laughs> to men's football also. Yeah, well, the, the like the whole farrago about it being killed basically at birth the last time they tried <laughs> in the men's game was hilarious. Basically, in a, Three or four high-profile managers came out and said it's a terrible idea, yeah. and we just gave up on it. Uh, yeah, it was it, interesting yesterday in that I did kind of feel like, hmm, there are quite a few bad tackles going in that are, are going not unpunished as a result of the the severity of the yellow card uh, punishment. But the thinking there presumably is that you, if the punishment is so severe, that's a deterrent. You're, it's you supposed to be a deterrent. It. Yeah, it could turn into a pretty. If they did enforce it really strictly in the men's game it would certainly clean things up yes. it might just leave you with a lot of 12 apostles type games yeah well I'd say maybe for the first couple of years and then people realise okay it 
doesn't really pay for me to, <laughs> to keep doing this. Simon, let's do this. I've got a call here that says you're the most boring, predictable, condescending interviewer around. Go back to lecturing. You have the charisma of a sick bag. Oh God. That's just it. I just Whoa. mentioned, not you, not me. Okay, ain't nobody fucking with my click. Click, 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 click. Ain't nobody fresher than my mom. We don't normally click, broadcast all click, the, the stuff that click, comes from scum click, around the country. Click. Email in here to editor at secondcaptains.com from Cahill Fallon, but Cahill is not this week's scumbag. Allow him to explain. Hi, folks. What's a, going on here? Yeah, in a slight change to the normal procedure, I would like to nominate a second captain's member as scumbag of the week. It's got to be Ken. As I'm sure you know, last Friday night was culture night. I was walking down Patrick Street in Dublin, gazing up at St. Patrick's Cathedral. I was almost wiped out by a speeding Mark Horgan, <gasps> who was maniacally cycling a bike on a footpath on the wrong side of Ugh. the road. He was being followed by, or was perhaps escaping from, a female fellow cyclist who was calling after him. Such reckless behaviour has led me to question whether I can continue to support such brazen flouters of the law. However, an apology in the style of Tiger Woods would surely placate me and the thousands like me who were appalled by this incident. Regards from Carl in Dublin. Carl, thank you for your entertaining and safety conscious email. I think we can all agree that the time has come for... One of us to become scumbag of the week. Mark, would you like to apologise to Call and the thousands of others? Hi there, Owen. Hi, Mark. Hi, Murph. Hello. Hi there, Ken. Hi. Uh, hello. Murph, I know usually. Uh, if you, do, do you mind helping me for this, please? Oh, uh, the piano. Yeah, the piano. Corner. I know Crocodile Rock's usually your mm-hmm. tune in these situations, but well, something a little something more sombre, I think, yeah. Mark. To be quite frank. <laughs> Off you go. It's perfect. Good morning, and thank you for joining me. Many of you in the room are my friends. Many of you in this room know me. Many of you have cheered for me, or worked with me, or supported me. And now, every one of you has good reason to be critical of me. I want to say to each of you, simply and directly, I am deeply sorry for my (laughs) irresponsible and selfish behaviour I engaged in. I do plan to return to Second Captains one day. I just don't know when that day will be. I don't rule out that it will be this year. When I do return, I need to make my behaviour more respectful of the game. Finally... There are many people in this room and there are many people at home who believed in me. Today I want to ask for your help. I ask you to find room in your hearts to one day believe in me again. Thank you. Thank you, Tiger slash Mark. It took a lot of guts for you to come up here and say that, Mark. Did he say the wrong way on the pavement? How can you cycle the wrong way on the pavement? Well, the pavement is on the wrong side of the road relative to the direction in which Mark was travelling at that time. Yeah. So, hang on. So it's like, because the car's... Uh, on the adjacent lane are going one mm. direction he thinks that that cyclists on the pavement should also go the same yeah, direction yeah I think so <laughs> I mean to be honest I don't know I, I think, I, I, I think, think there's a superfluous rule there yeah. I mean the rule is he's not supposed to cycle on the path but you can cycle wherever you want on the path you mean once you're on the path once you're I mean, flouting that line you haven't broken you Ken, haven't broken two rules Ken, there. I'm sorry we're just talking basic PR here do you want to be on the right side or the wrong side I mean, siding with Mark at this juncture is poison mm. for your career. It's That's true. all I'm saying. Okay. You just got to drop him now and then take him back in six months' time, Ken. Yeah. Exactly. That's the way it well, quietly, quietly bring him back into the Ken Early fold Thanks in a number of months. for listening to Monday's podcast. There's plenty more where this came from just as long as you're signed up to the World Service. That is, thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, thanks, Mark. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 